Well, will you open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2? We're going to study verses 1 through 7. The story is told of a decorated military veteran. He spent his early years experiencing the rigors of war on the battlefield and then spent his later years actually as an instructor in the classroom teaching battlefield strategy, tactics, survival skills. Year after year, the men and women who took that class spent most of their time sleeping <laughs> through, through the lessons. But there came a class where the students sat at the edge of their seats. They filled up their notebooks with every word the military instructor taught. One observer who knew how the class had developed a reputation for being boring over all those years, he had overheard a few students talking about how much they were getting out of the class. So he decided to go and ask the instructor, what gives? What did you, did you, did you, did you actually take a class on public speaking? How to win friends and influence enemies? What, what did you do? How, what was, what was the change? What was his secret? And the instructor smiled briefly and then said he was teaching the same way that he'd always been teaching. For years and years and years, nothing had changed. The presentation was just the same. But there was a difference. Those students were being shipped out to the front lines of a recently ignited war zone after they finished the class. You know, there's a big difference between being a student of war with no threat of war and being a student of war knowing you are going to have to fight the very next day. I think that sentiment, you guys, is very similar to the impact that the book of Revelation is to have on us. Last week, we heard the Apostle John refer to himself as a partner in the tribulation with the seven churches he was writing to in Asia Minor. He was personally experiencing tribulation during that time. You remember, he's imprisoned and exiled on uh, the Isle of Patmos. It was a brutal labor camp for those that were found guilty of being enemies of the state. And John was an enemy of the state because of his witness for Christ. But he wasn't merely talking about experiencing tribulation at that particular moment of time. If you remember, Revelation 1.19 says that John was also writing about trials and tribulations that the church in all ages would experience, along with the promise of victory that they would have in following Christ until the end. That's one of the blessings of studying the book of Revelation. It prepares and equips us to faithfully follow the Lord day by day through every season of life. This is such a relevant book. Not just for our time, it was a relevant book for that first generation of churches after the resurrection and ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. We need it just like they needed it. This, this book is for the church at all times. Not just that time and not just some future time that we don't even know if we're going to see. And you see how we can be. If, if we're thinking that, that tribulation and trials are mainly reserved 
for the end of the world, for the end of, of history before the second coming of Christ, I think we'll be a lot like those soldiers. I think we'll fall asleep. Because, but because there's nothing compelling us to be prepared and to be equipped for what we have to face this afternoon, let alone tomorrow and a lot of tomorrows after that. I think that's why revelation is so important for us. And that's why God gave us such a glorious vision of Jesus in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, that inspires reverent fear and intimate fellowship. The fear of the Lord will deliver us from all other fears. So we're going to be seeing that again and again as we study the book. So please hear that. The fear of the Lord will deliver you from all other fears. And the love of the Lord will satisfy and secure our hearts so that we won't give in to temptation and we won't give up during tribulation. All of that so that we can be faithful in the mission of making disciples until the end when Christ comes again. That's how, you know, I've, I've said from the beginning, this book is intended to pastor your soul. It's intended to meet you where you are and to grow you in Christ-like maturity. Your maturing as a Christian is the greatest deliverance for trials that you'll ever experience. Your growing in Christ's likeness is what you most need, what I most need. We don't most need the right party in office. We most need the character of Jesus transforming us day by day by day. Because being more like Christ is our safe ground. Our commitment to you is similar. Just as the book of Revelation is to pastor you, our commitment to you is similar. It's to equip and exhort and encourage you until the end. And if you're visiting, you've heard, you may not have heard me say this before, if you're newer here. Listen, we're gonna, we're gonna, there's going to be some things in Revelation that people are going to have some different views on, different interpretations on. And we'll, we'll highlight some of those different views, but what we want to most find our unity in are the essential core truths that Revelation wants to give us. So, so when I think of Hugh and Ellen and I, Eric as an elder candidate, Steve as an elder candidate, when I think of our pastoring you until the end, there, there's, there, that, that might mean that we're pastoring you until a rapture of the church. That might be the end. And, 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 and that'll be great. I'll high-five you on the way up if that's what happens. That would be wonderful. But I would not be a shepherd. We would not be shepherds if we were just looking for what, what sometimes some people misinterpret as just a beam-me-up Scotty kind of an escape. We want to prepare you to endure until the end, even if that means you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will fear no evil because Christ is with you. And that's our passion is for you to know him more and love him more and to serve him with greater abandon and to live on mission with him with growing progress year after year after year. So whether we're pastoring you to the end, if the end is a rapture, or if the end is going through very hard times and Jesus comes then, then we just want to be faithful to shepherd you faithfully. Does that make sense? So that's why if you're here and, and you, if, you, if your theology, if your interpret, understanding of scripture is, includes a rapture, welcome. 
If you're here and you're amillennial or postmillennial and, and, and that, that's not a part of your theology, welcome. We just want to look to Jesus, the reverent, with reverent fear and intimate fellowship with him and follow him all of our days. Amen. So I hope, I hope that helps. Um, so here's what I want to do. I want us to read the text for this morning. Then we'll go over the main point, and then we'll break, it, break the, the text down. So if you'll join me in the reading of Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's stop and let's, let's, let's align our hearts to be in allegiance to the King of Kings. Let's, let's not wait to an invitation to be prayed for. Let's, from the very beginning, say, God, I believe this is your holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative word. I need it more than I need my daily bread. Speak to me, Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you've fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Our main point this morning is that God calls us to declare and defend sound doctrine and Christian ethics. And we saw that, didn't we see that really already unfold in the, in the reading of the text? While being devoted to loving both God and neighbor. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, um, boy, that, uh, you already know how this read my mail this week. I want to love like you love. So would you do, would you speak to us as a church family? We don't want to just, just ask for this as individuals. God, how we pray that as a body of believers, as a local church, you will do a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered work in our hearts that when everything is said and done, we would have been known as Christians by our love. So please, God, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, let's start and unpack this from the first couple of verses. The first point this morning is Jesus knows the condition and character of his churches. And you really see that in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2a. Um, So in verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. And then let's, let's talk about that before we go further. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Then there's tons of debate on what, what he's talking about there. Um, I think probably because every other part of Revelation that uses the word angel, it's speaking literally of angels. Uh, so perhaps this, some people have thought perhaps this is a guardian angel of each church. Maybe each church has some kind of angelic representative. I, I think regardless, it's a reminder that the battles that God is most focused on are winning are spiritual battles. Thinking back to Daniel, remember we studied Daniel before we studied Revelation and the purpose was so that we would, we would be seeing foreshadowing of all these things already taking place. And do you think back to even Daniel and the angels that he spoke of and wrote of, how they, 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 there, there, were, there were angelic uh, battles going on in regard to national issues taking place between Israel and other nations. So, Bottom line, guess what? We have strong help from heaven. (laughs) That's really bottom line. That's what I'm most taking out of it, is regardless of what we face as a church family, we have strong help from heaven. The word angel, some people think it's a word for a senior pastor or the pastor who's overseeing the particular church being addressed. And yet that could certainly be. Um, it then goes on. Let's look at the church in Ephesus. What, what was unique about the church in Ephesus? Um, this would be the closest church to Patmos. So this would be the logical starting point for the route that the book of Revelation would take after it was compiled to go to the seven churches. Um, the, the, even though this, I think it's important at the end of the, the text for this morning, I want you to see a a, a phrase you're going to hear every lesson over these next six weeks after today that we're not just to say, well, okay, I passed the the Ephesus test. (laughs) So so maybe I wonder what, what church applies to me. That's not the way the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says... Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Every one of these letters applies to all of us. And if if it's not applying right now, it will at some point. We're all going to need the lessons of this book um, at some point. So let's be listening with with intent, intentional attention as as we study each church. Ephesus was the leading city of Asia, Asia Minor. We would know that now as, as Turkey, modern-day Turkey. There's a modern, th- modern thorough, major thoroughfare for business. It was a gateway to the Roman Empire. Um, it was famous for a flourishing marketplace. Uh, I read this. I thought this was interesting terminology. In that marketplace, one of their, one of their key sources of income could have been called religious tourism religious tourism. Well, that's because there was, there was such an emphasis on idol worship. The, the many figurines, if you ever would go to Asia with us and, and, and serve where we serve uh, with the church planning pastor that we work there, work with there, you, you would find something probably a little bit similar. There's a lot of religious tourism where we go. There's buying and selling of these idols, thinking that somehow these silent 
blind, deaf statues are going to help you. Oh, God, save, save, save those precious people. There was, it was a religious tourism because of the temple of the false god Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was massive idolatry going on in the city. Wherever there's massive idolatry, you also always, um, always have massive sexual immorality. So there was cultic prostitution going on in the name of worship. Uh, and the temple actually provided hardened criminals a refuge in its gates without any call of justice. It just come give us your criminals and they can come hide from justice. There's no call for repentance. There's no restoration. There's no restitution. You can just come with all of your dark heart and stay on the temple uh, premises. One ancient philosopher who lived in Ephesus said, no one could live in Ephesus without weeping at its immorality. When I read that, I, I prayed, God, give me that heart for the United States. Guys, I'm so sick of cursing the darkness. I, 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 my tendency is when I'm looking at newspapers or looking at news on the internet or a news broadcast, I, my knee-jerk reaction is I curse the darkness. I, I want to weep over the, the immorality of our nation. I want to cry out and use my tears in, as prayers for revival and, and that God would use us to shine gospel light in this place where there's such great need. The temple of Artemis cast this large shadow over the city. It was four times the size of the Acropolis in Athens. The, the list of men, this is, this is significant because you heard what it said today. They abandoned the love they had at the first. Do you know who, would, who pastored this church? It started with Apollos having huge influence in the beginning parts of the church. Paul the Apostle pastored this church. Timothy pastored this church. And John himself pastored this church. That's sobering. That'd be like saying, hey, this church pastored by Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, R.C. Sproul, and John Piper abandoned their first love. If that, that, wants, that wants me to, it makes me almost want to go to my knees right there. So that we don't think more of ourselves than we should, right? Keep that in mind when we, when we really unpack what, what Christ had against the church. We're reminded that Christ isn't merely in the midst of his churches. Did you notice that he's walking among the lampstands? The lampstands, if you're new uh, in joining us, the lampstands are a picture of the local churches. And Jesus is walking among them. He's actively present in their midst. Listen, Jesus is actively present with every believer, but I got to tell you, and if, if, if somebody's watching from home, or maybe you're kind of just testing the waters of what our church is like versus others, please find a church. Please, don't, don't resort to watching online. God does something when his people gather. There is this sense of Christ walking among us. It's a cherished thing. How, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't so many of us be able to put our hands up and say, oh my goodness, I experience, I experience the Lord in my personal devotions. Praise God for that. Thank God for his faithfulness. I experience the Lord in a unique way when I gather with other believers like I don't when I'm by myself. 
He's actively walking amongst the churches. So that, and, and constantly looking to do godly good for us, even when we can't see it. The lampstand also reminds us of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was, the Holy Spirit is symbolized by oil in the Old Testament, and it was the oil that fueled the light of the lampstands. And the lampstands remind us of our mission to shine the light of the gospel by making disciples for Christ from all peoples. And it says he's holding the churches in his hands. He's in complete control of both blessing them and disciplining them. And he's doing a little bit of both with the Ephesian church this morning, isn't he? He goes on in verse 2 to say, I know. And let's just stop there for just a second. So much, I'm going to ask you, would you do this? Would you on your own regularly go back and look at Revelation 1, 9 through 20, and regularly go back and look at that glorious vision of Christ. The vision of Christ with his eyes burning like fire, his head white like wool, looking like the ancient of days. Sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. John falling down on, on his face as a dead man in reverent fear. And at the very moment it seems that he falls down, he feels Jesus' hand on his shoulder calling him for intimate fellowship with him. Those pictures are going to be all over the letters to the seven churches. And we're already seeing it. We're already seeing it as Jesus the high priest walking among the lampstands. But when he says, I know... He's saying that those laser-like eyes, those, those eyes of, of fiery love for his people, they see what you're going through. You're hiding it from everybody else, but Jesus sees. He sees your heartache. He sees your sorrow. He sees your guilt. He sees your shame. He sees the sin that you're struggling with, but you're trying to hide. You're embarrassed to tell it to someone else. He sees it. His, his hair is white with eternal wisdom. He's, he's got a plan for all that you're going through. So when, when it says, I know, it's really speaking about that vision of Jesus. He knows, and he's working a plan for all of us personally and corporately. So what does he know about the church in Ephesus? Well, the second point is Christ commends the church for their love of sound doctrine. So let's, let's kind of unpack this. Just, just, we'll just go through this pretty quickly. So they, their love of truth made them vocationally sound. And you really see that in, in verse 2b. They had a work ethic that did its work as unto the Lord. Remember what the scripture says, they, were, they worked, they toiled. They did it with patient endurance. They didn't give up when it got hard and they finished what they started. So it was really a Christian work ethic. They were, they were wanting to, to be a demonstration of the change Christ makes in the human heart by the work that human hands do for the glory of the Lord. That was in contrast, so listen to Ephesus and listen to our country right now. That was in contrast to the pleasure-seeking, entitlement-motivated, lazy population around them. Isn't it just crazy that even though there's, a, there's just a resurgence of commerce and all of these things, there's still not enough workers to go around? Because people are just, they've enjoyed getting the handouts from their savior, the government. Very similar things taking place here. And so, so their love of truth made them vocationally sound. Their love of truth didn't just stop at vocation. I do want to, they were a get or done kind of people. And Randy, it's so cool you're sitting right there. 
So you guys are like this. There's so many of you like this. You see a need in our church and you are responding to it, sometimes even before the elders know about it. Last week, I'm you know, walking around and Arenio comes and says, is there a toolkit in the church? Which isn't always the best sound to you know, come and greet your pastor with. Is there a toolkit in the church? Why? Well, one of the blinds in the foyer had fallen down. So here's the difference between me and you. You tell me, the blinds have fallen down. And here's me. The blind has fallen down. That's like the sky is falling, right? And Arenio said, well, yeah, no. Is there a toolkit in the church? But Arenio, the blind has fallen down. But he, that, you don't know the highlight that was <laughs> for me because it, I would have then started wondering, who do we call? Eric, who do we? I, I always call our smart guys. Eric, who do we call? What do we do? What do we do? And you just knocked it out. You just went, put it back up. Oh, how novel. What a great idea. Let's just put it back up. That was like these Ephesian believers. The love of truth changes the way we work. The love of truth made them theologically sound. It wasn't just vocationally sound. They would not tolerate, did you see that? They would not tolerate those who are evil, especially those who call themselves apostles and are not. You have tested them according to both their doctrine and their lives, and you've found them false. Doctrine and life, they go together. And they were willing to pay the price for not compromising sound doctrine. Verse 3 talked about them enduring patiently, bearing up for my namesake, and not growing weary. These were the people that I so admired. They suffered without complaining. Any suffering complainers among us today? Besides me. Man, I suffer it's so easy for me to complain. The blind has fallen down. They took the warnings of Paul seriously. I put a couple of passages here. Paul had warned them that this would be happening. Acts 20, verses 28 through 31. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's speaking to the elders and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This was the elders of the Ephesian church. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. He says something similar to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So vocationally sound, theologically sound, they were ethically sound. The love of truth, the love of sound doctrine made them ethically sound. And where I get that is from verse 6 when he talks about how they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Uh, we're going to explain that more in detail, so I'm just going to give it a glancing blow today because it comes up again in the letter to another church. But this was essentially because you're free in Christ, because you're under grace, you can just live pretty much however you want and you're going to be forgiven. So it's totally okay to say, I believe in Jesus and be given to idolatry, be given to sexual uh, 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 immorality, sexual sin. That's, that, that, that's what a lot of this teaching of the Nicolaitans was. So these people, they were ethically sound. 
grace actually doesn't justify sin, right? Can I get an amen for that? Grace actually empowers us to deny sin. That's what the scripture teaches. They stood up for the biblical definition of marriage, being one biological male with one biological female for a lifetime. They stood up for gender being assigned by God at conception before the foundation of the world, if we're going to really go down to it. And it's not decided by culture or by your feelings at any one time. So these people were some solid people, weren't they? There's so much for us to admire here. So he's, he doesn't minimize that. He doesn't tell them, okay, You've got some weaknesses, so quit focusing on these strengths and now give all the attention to your weaknesses. No, he says, keep going. This is good. Keep going. What you're doing is pleasing to me. But then that verse 4 comes. But I have this against you. They had a problem, but it wasn't just an isolated problem. This was cancer. I mean, you know, if, you, if you, you've had to walk with a loved one through cancer and it's been just that fast growing, medicine can't treat it, cancer. And it starts in the lymph nodes and it goes to another organ and it, you know, it just starts to permeate the whole body. I want you to picture that when it comes to what John is telling the Ephesian church now. This is serious. This is cancerous if you don't deal with it. So let's unpack that. So Christ not only commends the church, but he corrects the church. Our third point, for their lack of love for God and neighbor. They abandoned the love they had at the first Uh, Many of you have learned that verse by saying they left their first love. So I think we should be careful how we define first love. I I was just curious. I thought, what what kind of definitions of first love would I find? Webster's Dictionary defines it as the first person one loves in a romantic way. That's, you know, that's not what this means. But if it did, then, oh, and then it went on to say, and... You never forget your first love. You guys, I said, I mean, did you have first loves? I mean, did you have anybody like that? You know what was for me? Sixth grade. I, I crushed. My first crush was on this little blonde named Jean. I was crushing so bad on her, I stole a ring from our little local department store to give it to my sixth grade crush. The, the owner of that store is best friends with my dad, and I, I guess he knew I did it. <laughs> At some point, my dad is saying, uh, we need to go back to, we need to go to the department store. Uh, you have some confessing to do. But that was my first crush. My first Twitter patient, how about that? <laughs> my first Twitter patient was for a precious girl named Cheryl who was absolutely beautiful, and I'm absolutely not beautiful. And I couldn't believe that someone so beautiful liked me. My first love, humanly speaking, you know who I'm going to talk about. She was just in here a few minutes ago. She's teaching in kids' ministry today. My first love, humanly speaking, is absolutely the most beautiful girl in the world to me. My beloved wife, Jan. But that's not the definition. 
I took a stab at trying to define first love as, as it's used and I think applied here. So here we go, put up with this. The doctrine of first love is founded upon Christ as the preeminent love of our lives. This love compels us to prioritize loving our fellow Christian neighbors as Christ has loved us. At the same time, we're compelled to proclaim Christ's love and sacrifice to our unbelieving neighbors through the gospel. So in summary, first love is loving God with all of our hearts and loving our neighbors as ourselves in pursuit of making disciples of all peoples. What is so sad about this is that what Paul said in the book of Ephesians, the church had been once known by its love. Go back and read the book of Ephesians. There is so much talk about love in Ephesians. Paul called them even higher. They needed to be rooted and grounded in love. You remember that phrase? He said they, he wanted them to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He called them to be humble and patient with each other and bear up with each other in love so that they would live in gospel unity. He called them to speak the truth in love so that the body would build itself up in love. And somehow, in spite of all the good teaching from amazing pastors, in spite of that, they drifted from their love that they had at the first. And so we got to get personal. What does the Lord see in you? We, can't, we have to take it there. When the Lord looks at you with those eyes of blazing fire, those laser-like eyes, what does he see about Christ being the preeminent love of your life? And have you drifted from that some? Have other affections rivaled your affection for Jesus? What does the Lord see about loving your neighbor as Christ, your Christian neighbor? Have you drifted from that some? What does the Lord see when he also defines first love as being evangelistic and sharing the gospel with our lost neighbors? What does he see? Have we drifted from Christ being preeminent? as the lover of our souls. I mean, Peter had to answer for it. Let's, let's put ourselves in Peter's shoes. Peter, do you love me? So, would you just put your name in there? Do you love me? And you saw how Peter uh, <laughs> just fumbled that, stuttered over it. Because He'd been living recently not as one in whom Christ was his preeminent love, was he? What can cause us to drift from preeminent love? I think there's several things. I think for some of us it's the feeling that God disappointed me or let me down. Has that happened to you? And you've kind of, your heart has, has gotten a little less pursuing of Christ's heart. It's not having a biblical view of suffering and you're becoming bitter toward God for allowing pain to be a part of your life. You, you don't understand it through the lens of scripture and, and how God is doing a work in you. You're believing that God only loves you if he answers your prayers the way you want or changes your circumstance to make you happy. And if he's not doing it, he must not love me. And so you pull your heart back more. Sometimes it's just this. 
And I think all of us could say, yeah, that, that, that for sure is me. When you've been busy, so whether it's work is, is just calling you, for, used to put in 50 hours, man, for two months you've been putting in 80 hours. I mean, you, you're, you are sleeping until the alarm goes off and, and you've set the alarm to give you just enough time to get to work to start the next series of hours. And it's just busy. You're doing good things. You're doing your work is under the Lord. But in all of that busy season, have any of you experienced that, that the lagging of your spiritual dif- disciplines didn't stay just seasonal? You actually got into a habit of not turning to the Lord in prayer. Listen, it was understandable, right? When things were so busy, we should probably be alert to say, man, life is so busy for me now, I probably should get up 15 minutes earlier because I'm going to need, need Jesus more with my life so busy. But the Lord sees, he understands. Has your heart drifted from him because your regular meeting with him, gathering with the church, being in a small group, it's waned. For, for reasons that are not bad, but they became a habit. Have we drifted from the priority of loving others as believers? They had devotion to sound doctrine, and they were guarding against theological error. But I think what started probably happening is what we've seen, especially during COVID, that they started using their theology to self-righteously judge people. Secondary issues were being treated as primary issues and battle lines drawn. To what, I mean, do you wear a mask or not wear a mask? Do you take a vaccine? You don't take a vaccine. Do you believe in premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial? Do you believe in a rapture? Do you believe in enduring till the It's like all of these things began to be weapons. God does not call us to love his word so we can weaponize it. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm raising my voice. It's me. I do this. I find these ugly elements in my heart. And oh God, I want to change. I want to grow. I'll tell you uniquely how that happened uh, before. So let me ask you, have you been hurt? It typically happens because you've been hurt by someone you never thought would hurt you. It's in the church. It was a pastor, it was a, a Sunday school teacher, it was a youth leader, and you got hurt, and, and, and you became bitter, and you became unforgiving. And you, and you probably haven't thought of yourself as being not loving, but if you look at your relational circle, you happen to be loving people who say, are safe to love. You're looking, and you're looking at people, and you say, I don't think this person's going to hurt me, so I'll probably gravitate to that. Are you just selective about who we love? Was Jesus, oh my goodness, guys, were you safe for the love of Jesus? We, we, we had the nails that put him on the cross. We were not safe for Jesus to love. Why do we think we need to just live safe about loving others? Have you drifted from loving a fellow believer? Have you drifted from proclaiming Christ's love for unbelievers through the gospel? 
Ultimately, doesn't Paul tell us this in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3? You know, if I speak in tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Listen, I, I think that there's some element in this passage that says that, that churches that are devoted to sound doctrine can actually be the most guilty of this. And I'll just speak for myself. Um, years ago, our church... For those of you who stayed in the church with me as a pastor for a long time, and thank you. When the church brought me here from New Orleans, I, I did not have a reformed view of salvation. God opened my eyes during the time I was here in Midland to a reformed view of, of his saving grace. I began to love the doctrines of grace. I, I began to see how incapable and unwilling I was to be saved, were it not for his great mercy. And that was a thrill. That was a joy. That's, that was happening to Hugh's life. It was happening in Alan's life. It was, there was some rippling that was going on, and it was really something to behold. We were teaching the church through the book of Romans, which, which speaks a lot about those issues, doesn't it? There began to be concern amongst people who were not believing that. And I wasn't a very good pastor. When, when confronted about Reformed theology versus Arminian theology and all that, if you have Arminian theology, I want to give you a big hug today. I would love for you to experience what I've experienced in the Reformed view. But I wasn't hugging people. I just wanted to win arguments. I had sound doctrine, but I wanted to win the fight more than to win the brother or the sister. And I wept tears, guys. I wept tears. And you know why sometimes I think God lets us cry deeply? Because he wants to use the water of our tears to soften the hardness of your heart, of our hearts, to make us soft. I, in, in my combativeness with people, I started to be called a cult leader, false prophet. I have a precancerous condition in my esophagus. Some people started saying it's because you're a false teacher that you have that precancerous condition. Oh, man. So I was hurting others, I'm sure. I was being hurt. So guess what I started doing? Hiding. I even... Just, so I, pull, I actually parked. <laughs> actually parked today where I used to park when I was. I'm not hiding from anybody now. It's just a quicker path to my office. Um, I would park so that no one would know I was in the building. It's just horrible. It's just so embarrassing to tell you this. I thought that maybe not hurting 
was the cure. Not hurting. That's what I most need. Well, you know what? The more I withdrew from people, the more I, I w- reserved loving people who seem safe to love, who, who seem like this probably per- won't be a person that hurts me. Uh, something was happening to me, Emma. I was getting harder. I wasn't being hurt. You can hide and not hurt. <laughs> That's the answer, isn't it? And you die inside. Because that's not the Christian life, is it? The Christian life is loving people in the name of Christ. Sharing in his sufferings with the vibrancy and vitality of how it pleases God. How he, it's well done, good and faithful servant kind of stuff. And I just realized I was, I was digging a grave for myself. I wasn't hurting, but I was dying more every day. Better to love like Christ and be hurt than to not love and hide. You start to kind of see why the warning at the end of this passage is pretty strong. Because what does he say? If you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Because it's your love that's supposed to tell people you're Christians. It's your forgiveness that's supposed to show the world what I'm like. It's your mercy and patience and grace that's supposed to actually be your calling card. Especially with those who've hurt you. Have you drifted from the preeminent love of Jesus or for the priority of loving a brother or, or from just drifted from sharing the gospel regularly. Listen, if you're sharing the gospel once a year, you're drifting because the love of Christ is actually supposed to inform. You don't need courage. You need love. That's what you need. And so that's what, that's what John is aiming at here. So he says, remember from where you've fallen. Yeah, go, I, just put, I just send you back to the, the vision of Jesus, reverent fear, intimate fellowship. Remember who he is. Do you remember in the book of Luke, it's, it's uh, chapter, I think it's Luke 7, 47. I always think of this because this is a big old airplane that can get me wherever I need to go. And, <laughs> and the verse is this, he who's been forgiven much. Do you know some of it? Do you know it? loves much. I think we need that diet regularly because I am more, I tend to be more aware of other people's sins against me than my sins against God and others. And when I'm remembering how much I'm forgiven, it's amazing how the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus shapes my heart and I go and I love again regardless of whether it involves some hurt sometimes. So he says, remember from where you've fallen repent. This is a godly sorrow and it's it's turning from sin. It's it's confessing sin. It's seeking reconciliation with others. You You can read for yourself there. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11 gives you a really great definition of what repentance looks like. And then he says return and do the works you did at the start. It doesn't mean 
feel the feelings you felt at the first. That's not it. It means you've turned to the Lord. You're receiving grace. You're being filled by the Spirit. And now in obedience to Him, not for for the response of the world. It's because of the pleasure of God that I'm going to give of myself again for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom. So it's not saying feel the feelings. It's recommit yourself to what you used to live like. Oh, there's so much more, but there's no time left. The last point this morning is Christ's warning and promise to the church. He, he says, if you, you exist to be a lighthouse to the world. You exist. We're a city set on a hill. That's why you exist is to be a gospel witness. And if you're not going to be a gospel witness, the Lord has no problem disciplining us. This isn't talking about losing salvation. It's talking about increasingly less provision and power for ministry. I'm going to ask you this. This is a sobering question. If God removed the Holy Spirit to you today, would you even notice? Or are you so accustomed? I mean, listen, because we are, don't we? We live so much in our own strength and our own wisdom with our own goals and our own designs. And I, I think sometimes would we even notice if he removed our lampstand? The point is that he would allow the church to become just a building instead of a body. But verse 7 is the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and I would say conquers, lovelessness whether it's for God himself, for your Christian neighbor, for your lost neighbor, to him who conquers, I will grant them to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. We are more than conquerors in Christ who loves us. And the promise of God making all things new, so it's eat at the tree of life. He's, he's talking about I, there's coming a day when there's going to be a new heaven and new earth, and there's going to be a new garden. And the, the leaves of that tree, the fruit of that tree, are going to be the healing of the nations. That's what's ahead for the followers of Jesus. Could you stand with me and let's, let's close in prayer. Joshua, I've already gone over. Um, so for the sake of kids' ministry and all of that, um, Becky and Kenzie, would you, would you come forward to be available to pray with anybody who, who would just want to respond to the Lord in prayer and to have somebody praying with you for it? Uh, Becky and Kenzie will just be right up here in front if that, if that could serve you. I would ask you, please, whether you pray here, whether you go home and just close the door to your room, I think we all need to go before the Lord for this. We just live in such a hostile, angry world, and it's just so easy to be more conformed to the world than to Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we ask that you give us grace to actually live in the good of what you commended about the Ephesian church their love of sound doctrine, causing them to have a godly Christian work ethic, sound theology, sound, just sound Christian ethics. Make us more like that. 
but would you help our sound doctrine to be the means by which we love you, love our neighbor in the body of Christ, and love the lost. Please fill us with your spirit. Please melt whatever is those pockets of our hearts that, are, that have been hardened that you've exposed this morning. Would you, would you melt them? We want to be tender-hearted toward you and useful in your sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.